Brothers and sisters, I ask that you please turn with me to our text today, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, as we will be looking at verses 20 to 30. Mark, chapter 3, verses 20 to 30. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, He cast out the demons. And He called them to Him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided... He cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of the eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. Thus far is a reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters, these first two verses, I think parallel a sad reality that a lot of Christians experience upon conversion. I mean, think about it. What happens when someone comes to faith? They're excited, aren't they? Their eyes have been opened. Their minds have been enlightened. Their soul invigorated and their heart inflamed for the Lord. And all they want to do is serve Him and tell their family and friends about Christ and what He has done for them and what He can do for them and all sinners if they simply repent and believe. I can remember my own conversion shortly thereafter, getting my hands on all these different books on creation and redemption and the Trinity. And I just I took it all in. I couldn't get enough of it because so much of it was new to me. And all I wanted to do was, was go and to tell others, my friends and family, about what it is that I've learned. And maybe many of you can can relate to that and identify with that when you were first Christians. But the disappointing thing was that those that we were closest to, those that we thought would be happiest for us in our conversion, were not. And in fact, they looked at us like we were crazy. They had no idea what it had gotten into us. All of a sudden, we're spending all this time in church and we're reading our Bible and spending our time with Christians, and when we're around our friends and family, we're talking about Christ. 
And their great concern is that we are taking this Christianity thing far too seriously. It's taking over our life. It's having way too big of of an effect upon us. So much so that we have stopped doing many of the things we once did. And now, they don't care for us too much like they used to. They don't like the person that we've become because now our faith in Christ has dominated and controlled our life. But why does it seem that today Christian devotion is seen as a bad thing? Because people are devoted and passionate about all different kinds of things in life today, aren't they? And the world praises them for it. For those people who work 80 hours a week, Monday through Sunday, they don't take any time off. They're praised for what? Being hardworking and dedicated to their job. Right? The world praises those people who are passionate about some social cause that they wholeheartedly believe in, don't they? But why does it seem that passion for Christ, that passion for the Gospel, that passion for holy living seven days a week and 365 days a year, which at one time in society was looked at as something that was good, now is looked down upon and we are mocked and ridiculed for it in today's world. I think that's because the world misunderstands what real and true Christianity is. And a part of the problem is, is they've seen so many bad examples of Christianity today. Right? People who profess to be Christians but live no differently than the world, whose profession of faith has no effect upon any of the decisions that they make in their life. They're only Christians for an hour or two perhaps on Sunday, and that's it, if even that. And so as a result, this is what the world identifies as real Christianity. This must be the norm. And so anyone who does more than that is at odds with mainstream evangelical Christianity. And so for those believers who actually live as they profess at all times, every day, and in all conditions, what are we looked at as? Fanatics. Religious fanatics. We're extreme. We're crazy. We're out of our minds. In fact, Katrina and I have been told by people we know They thought that we were in a a Christian cult because we spend too much time at church. We spend too much time with Christians. But that's because they misunderstand. They thought Christianity is something that you just go and do on Sunday. You, You check in real quick. You check out. You get a small dose of Jesus. Not a big dose, though. That's too much. And then you forget about Him the whole rest of the week until the next Sunday, and you do it over again. And perhaps many of you have experience similar things like that. But I would say and exhort you, don't worry, you're in good company. You're in good company because Paul himself was accused of being out of his mind. We see this in the book of Acts. And if you would like to, please turn there with me. Acts chapter 26. Be looking at, starting at verse 24. Acts 26, starting at verse 24. And as you turn there, Paul, he's been in prison and he's brought before King Agrippa and he's telling him why he was captured and why he's in prison. It's because he's going around everywhere telling people to repent 
and to believe. And so we pick up in verse 24. And he was saying these things in his defense. And Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, you, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. We see here, Paul is preaching the Gospel. And the governor Festus chimes in and interrupts. And he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. The charge is that because of Paul's faith, his mind is, is clouded. And he's lacking sound judgment. He's doing and saying things that a normal person should not do or say. And this is the very same thing that Jesus Himself has been accused of throughout His ministry. Oftentimes by the scribes and the Pharisees, but as we see in these first two verses, even by His friends and His family. Our passage opens with Mark telling us about this crowd forming outside His house once again. And perhaps the home that Mark is speaking about is that same home that Jesus retreated to earlier in the Gospel where He stayed with Peter and Andrew in Capernaum. But we're told that they, they sit down and they're about to eat a meal and knock, knock, knock. They're interrupted again. Now, I don't know about you, but after a long, hard day work, when I come home and a warm meal is placed before me and I'm starving, I'm ready to eat it, and I hear a knock at the door, I don't know how you would react with a, a crowd out there wanting your attention saying, come and talk to us. Perhaps a little frustrated, a little angry, because all you want to do is sit down and fill your belly with this delicious meal. And so we can understand the reaction of Jesus' friends and family, can't we? It's a, it's a natural reaction. They probably think Jesus is being too consumed with His work. He's too consumed with helping others. And He just needs to relax. He needs a, a good meal and a warm bed. And so they want to get him away, take him out from this crowd, because they think that Jesus is losing his mind. But that's because they don't comprehend his devotion to his ministry. And we know why that is, because John tells us in the Gospel, chapter 7, verse 5, that his brothers did not believe in him. And so it's easy to understand why they misunderstood His passion for the ministry. Why Jesus could skip out on that warm meal. Why Jesus could just get a little bit of sleep in order that He might proclaim the Gospel to the crowds. It's the same reason that people thought Paul was out of his mind. It's the same reason that people, our own friends and family, might think that we are out of our mind. 
It's because they misunderstand the Gospel, not knowing that it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. They misunderstood the words of Christ. They misunderstood the actions of Christ. People today misunderstand what the Christian life entails and by whom power we live it out in. And so the natural reaction of natural people should not shock us. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so when they see this radical transformation in us, that was done in us and upon us by Christ, they can't understand it. They don't comprehend it. And so the natural response is to say that something is wrong with you. You have changed. You have changed. And what's changed about you? Well, it's your beliefs. So there lies the problem. This is the same thing that the scribes today say about Jesus as well. Something must be wrong with Him. But that's because they misunderstand Christ's dedication to proclaiming the Gospel. They misunderstand His passion for working miracles and casting out demons. It is they who misunderstand Christ which causes them to look down upon Him, to think themselves morally superior and to give these allegations and accusations that teeter on the point of no return. They were saying the very same thing that John in his Gospel, chapter 10, verse 20, tells us other Jewish people were saying of Jesus. This man has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? And it's this misunderstanding of who Christ is and what He has come to do, and in whose power He works in, that causes these scribes to create these new allegations today. That He is working hand in hand with Satan. And so it's this that we want to look at together this morning and unpack a little more for the remainder of our time. And So we're going to do so under two points. The first is the charge. The first is the charge. The second is the rebuttal. So the charge and the rebuttal. So what are the allegations that we read that the scribes charge Jesus with? Well, it's twofold. There are two allegations made. First, that he is possessed by Beelzebul. The second is that it is by the prince of demons that Jesus casts out demons. Those are the two charges. So let's look at that first charge. And in order to understand the first charge, we have to understand who Beelzebul is. And so Beelzebul is a reference to the god Baal of the Old Testament. And it was a, a name used of him that you can find in 2 Kings chapter 1. And Baal was viewed as the, the Lord over the demonic. Baal was the, the Lord over evil spirits. And so at the very outset, we see the vile nature of the charge, don't we? They are saying that Jesus is possessed by a demon. He's possessed by an unclean spirit. But that is because they're unwilling to believe that what He was saying and the works that He was doing were being done in and through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so their only conclusion is then, if this man is possessed by a demon, then it must be by the prince of demons that he cast them out. Now what this tells us, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus 
was giving overwhelming proof and evidence of His miraculous works. Right? They were overwhelming proof of what He was doing before the eyes of the people. Because in no way were these scribes from Jerusalem going to come down and confront Jesus if He was just some two-bit healer. And so they're angry with Jesus now. Angrier than ever before. Angry that Jesus is preaching a new message claiming that the kingdom of God is at hand, a kingdom that they don't understand, that He's saying, repent and believe. They're angry with Jesus that He's captivated the Jewish people, people that used to look up to them. But now Jesus is preaching with authority the people have never seen before, and they're astonished by Him. Jesus has come forgiving sin and making friends with sinners, and disregarding the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. And they've had enough. They want to put an end to it by attempting to scare people away from Jesus and by destroying His reputation. And how do they go about doing it? Saying that He is evil. Saying that He is possessed by a demon. That He works with Satan. And isn't this the exact same strategy that the enemies of Christ's church use today? There are those in society who don't understand why Christians just won't be quiet and fall in line with culture. Right? Popular culture says today that what is evil is good and what is good is evil. They say, we are the authority, society is the authority of what is moral and immoral. But because the true church will never bow the knee to sinful man, what do they do? They speak evil about our names. They try to discredit us by accusations. They call names just like they did Jesus, didn't they? What do they say about Christians today? Homophobic, transphobic, racist, misogynistic. And the list goes on and on and on. And so what are we to do? What are we to do? Are we to go cower and hide and keep silent because we don't want to be labeled such terrible things? That's what they want us to do. Well, who is it that we must look to as our example? How about we look to Christ? Is that what Christ did? No. Christ did not run and hide. For He had a mission. And His mission was to do the will of the Father. His mission was to preach to the multitudes and call sinners to repentance. His mission was to live obediently to the will of the Father. To fulfill the law. To suffer and to die on the cross. His purpose was to bring redemption to a people. And nothing was going to stop Him. Jesus came into this world as the true light. As the light of the world. And this eventually cost Him everything. And now His church, who has been illuminated by Christ, is called to walk in that very same light to walk in that very same Spirit that we might only practice the truth 
and expose evil. And the light which God gives to His church should not run and hide. It is not to be hidden. It is not to be put under a basket. But the light that Christ gives to His church is to be put on a stand. It is to shine forth into the world regardless of the repercussions. It was the apostles who told the early church in the book of Acts that it is through many and much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. And why is that? It is because the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are at odds. They're opposed to each other. And so they can never be friends. There can never be peace. And there can never be harmony. You cannot reconcile Christ with Satan. You cannot reconcile the children of God with the children of wrath. And so those who are blinded by Satan, those who love this world, likewise are going to try to seek to harm and injure the church just like Satan tries to harm and injure Jesus Christ. This is why it's so important, brothers and sisters, and young ones, to know Christ the Savior. Because don't be confused. Everyone believes something about Christ. And so either you believe that He is the Son of God who took upon Himself our nature, who was anointed by the Holy Spirit to carry out His task as the Messiah, who suffered, died, raised, sits at the right hand of God, and will come again to judge the living and the dead, or you don't. And when confronted by this world, as they try to silence you for your beliefs, you'll end up finding out the answer of where you stand if you're not sure. Either you will boldly stand up for Christ and for the truth, or you will shrink back and fade away and keep silent. And how many people have we heard of? How many people perhaps did you once know that when pressured by society and the new moral norms, change their stance and their positions. You see, you will either love the world or you will love Christ. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot balance one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom. Because being friends with the world necessarily leads to compromising the Word of God. Being friends with the world means being ashamed of Christ. And what does Christ tell us of those who are ashamed of Him? When He returns again in glory, He will be ashamed of you. And so how does Jesus answer these charges that are brought against Him? That He is possessed by Beelzebul. And that by the prince of demons, He cast out demons. Well, this takes us then to point two this morning. The rebuttal. Now we're told that Jesus answers them with two parables. The first is to question how a divided kingdom can stand. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? That defeats his very purpose, doesn't it? If he destroys himself, he would be no more. That makes no sense. I mean, think about it. If the United States today was to engage in a battle with, a, with another nation, And yet, right before we fought that nation, we turned on ourselves and attacked one another. We would severely inhibit our ability to win against the enemy, wouldn't we? Because we'd already destroy ourselves before we could fight the enemy. And so Jesus is saying, 
Satan didn't spend all this time working evil in the hearts of men and women so that he might send me to undo his work? That makes no sense. Jesus then makes another point using a second parable in verse 27 when he says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. You see, Jesus is saying, in order to dispossess a man of his goods, someone of greater power must come and do it. And Jesus is saying, I am that greater power. And He's saying to them, the scribes, you ought to know this, you experts of the law. But you don't know your Old Testament well enough, for Isaiah spoke of Me that I would be anointed not with an evil spirit, but with the Holy Spirit. In order to open the eyes of God's people, to free sinners of their enslavement, to lead the blind and to heal the deaf. And my works prove this. Because although Satan's more powerful, brothers and sisters, than you and I, he stands no chance against God. Because Satan is nothing more than a mere creature. He cannot stand against the supernatural power of God. And so Christ is saying here that just like the thief who enters the house, perhaps with a a gun or a knife, in order to tie up and bind those unsuspecting people by exerting His greater power over them, Christ in His incarnation has exercised His power by binding Satan. No longer can Satan hurt or maim God's church. God will not lose not one person from His kingdom as He has limited Satan's power through the preaching and proclamation of the Gospel. That is how Satan's power has been limited. That is how God has bound Satan through the proclamation of the Word. As Satan's ultimate defeat has already been secured, it's already been sealed, it will happen, it will take place, for Christ triumphed upon Him on the cross. And so in Jesus' rebuttal, He proves the scribes wrong. He proves them wrong, demonstrating that He is not working by the power of Satan. But rather, He's saying that what I'm doing demonstrates my superiority over Satan and exhibits to all of you that it is not the power of Satan that is working, but the power of God. It is the Holy Spirit who is working. God's kingdom only grows and thrives and expands through the power of the Holy Spirit working in the hearts and the minds of believers. Jesus is saying, you have proof, you have evidence, you see it happening. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verses 18-19. to He says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. This is the same Spirit who descended out of heaven and fell upon Jesus and empowered His ministry. The third person of the Trinity. God the Holy Spirit, who the scribes now denied. 
and we're ascribing His work and His power to Satan. And this is what brings Jesus to say what He does then in verse 28. Look with me there, please. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. Here is what Jesus describes and what has been come to known by, known by us as the, the unpardonable sin. The sin that leads to death. And there are two points that I want to point out and pull out for us from these three verses as they offer us very rich and deep theological truth here. And so the first point is this. That saying that there is an unpardonable sin that Jesus describes as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit does not deny the fact that Christ died for every sin. It does not deny the fact there is no defect in Christ. There is no defect in the work of Christ. There is not this one sin out there that Christ just couldn't conquer and atone for. Because what is blasphemy anyway? Right? Blasphemy simply is speaking evil against God. It is speaking evil against God. And so if blasphemy is a sin that there is no forgiveness for, then guess what, brothers and sisters? None of us are forgiven. Because we've all blasphemed God. If Christ didn't die for the sin of blasphemy, then Peter wouldn't be saved. Because he denied the Lord three times. If Christ did not atone for the sin of blasphemy, then Paul would still be Saul. And he'd still be persecuting his church and blaspheming God. And so if Christ overcame all sin, even the sin of blasphemy, then what does he mean when he says that if for those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit, they have no forgiveness of sin? What does he mean when he says that? Well, based on the context of the passage, we see that the works of, the Christ, the works of Christ done by the Holy Spirit were clearly evident to all. Right? The scribes could not, deny, could not deny them. They seen that they were true. And so Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Boving says this, that the unpardonable sin is committed not out of ignorance, but out of a conscious, intentional, and deliberate blasphemy of the clearly recognized revelation of God's grace in Christ, by the Holy Spirit. Say that once more. The unpardonable sin is committed not out of ignorance, right? But it's deliberate. It's intentional. It's conscious blasphemy of what is clearly recognized to be the revelation of God in Christ Jesus by the work of the Spirit. That is the unpardonable sin. It's not ignorance of God. It's not simply unbelief or rejection of God. And so the unpardonable sin is not the sin of every reprobate. But only it's the sin of those who clearly see the work of God. 
who sufficiently inside are convinced of it. And yet, because of their wickedness and their sinfulness, they deny it and reject it and ascribe His work to Satan. And so this is why there's no forgiveness for it. Because for these people, there is no remorse. There is no repentance. There's instead an active assault upon the truth. What they know to be true. And yet they still reject it. Right? Those who have this condition knowingly reject the only remedy for their sin. That is why Jesus says there is no forgiveness for this sin. Because they openly desecrate the holy name of God and they don't care about it. And they continue to do it and remain impenitent until the very end. And this then leads us to the second point I wanted to highlight. And the last point I'll make before we close. And that is this. Although sin, all sin, leads to death, God offers forgiveness and salvation in Christ. You see, before Jesus tells the scribes of the unpardonable sin, what does He do first? He proceeds to tell them that all sins and all blasphemies that men make will be forgiven, doesn't He? Sins of the head. Sins of the heart. Sins of the tongue. Sins of the body. He has atoned for all of those sins. Look at David. An adulterer and a murderer. What was it that Christ uttered as He was on the cross for those who were killing Him? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We see Christ's death is sufficient to cover every sin of every man, but you must turn to Christ. You must turn to Christ. You must repent of your sin. You must believe in Christ. You must cleave to His merits. Some of you here today might be feeling unworthy, beaten down. You might be feeling rejected or worried. But Christ, in His glorious coming, accomplished redemption and now pardons all of your sin, past present and future if you but look to the righteousness of Christ alone in Christ Jesus by faith. And although your sins be like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. What a great promise we have. And so for believers here today, I want you to see the evil of sin. See the evil of sin. The cost of that evil was the blood of Christ. The cost of that evil was the blood of Christ. The evil of your sin is what Christ had to die for. And so I want you to think about that next time you consider sinning against God. When God's Word says don't do, and yet you decide in your hearts to do so anyway. When you hate your brother or your sister, when you look upon someone's lustful intention of the heart, when you tell little white lies 
that you think aren't a big deal. Because all sin is a big deal and heinous in the sight of God. For although the believer will never commit the unpardonable sin, what believers do and can do is grieve the Holy Spirit. That is exactly what you do when you pollute yourselves with sin. You grieve the Holy Spirit, the one who imparts life unto us, the one who sustains us, the one who teaches us, the one who indwells us, the one who sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit, who is the very source of your holiness. The one who knows the mind of God and who reveals that mind to you. And so it is our hope this day that the Spirit would continue to reveal the mind of Christ to us. That He would make us more sensitive to our sin. And that He would teach us all spiritual truth. And yet we not only pray this for ourselves, but we pray this also for those family members and those friends who don't believe. And who we talked about earlier in our sermon today, who look at us as religious fanatics and crazy people. Because it can be done. Christ can change their hearts if you just but continue to pray. Continue to profess the Gospel to them when you see them. Because the powerful work of God in their life can occur when the words of the Gospel are proclaimed to them accompanied by the Spirit. This is exactly what happened to Jesus' unbelieving brothers. They didn't believe. But God granted to them through that supernatural work, faith, repentance, the indwelling work of the Spirit. And now they are sealed as every single one of you are here today who are a believer in Christ. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who now causes you to walk in newness of life as we await that great day of redemption when Christ returns at the consummation of all things. Please, brothers and sisters, bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we come before You lowly in spirit, knowing our own unworthiness before You, our own frailty, and we ask, Lord, that You would grant to us a greater measure of Your Spirit working inside of us. That the Spirit would teach us all of Your ways, that He would reveal the mind of God to us, that we might know how we ought to live in this world. We pray, Lord, that we would never blaspheme God, that we would never blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But Lord, we need the aid of the Spirit in order to enable us to live holy lives and to pursue these holy lives. Lord, we ask that You would enable us to boldly proclaim Your Word, no matter what others say, whether it be a spouse or children or parents or close friends, that You would give us boldness that we would never recoil
that we would never shrink back when pressured by the world, that we would never be ashamed of Christ, but rather we would be overjoyed that we have been made His children and that we have been empowered to proclaim His Word and are willing to suffer and lose all for Him. And so, Father, we come before You this morning. We ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.